Well, we are coming to God's Word in this series, just asking God to teach us how to love like Jesus loved. And we're using the first part of 1 Corinthians 13, those descriptors of love, those verbs, those action words to, to help us to understand what, what love looks like, the way that Jesus loved. And we're laying alongside that different episodes out of the gospel, out of Jesus' life, to, for Jesus to, to just kind of teach us firsthand through his life what it looks like for you and I to love love like Jesus loved. And as we dive back into this series this morning, I want to start off with a a question just for your uh, reflection. And the question is simply this, how do you typically, let's just say typically, how do you typically respond to the news about the failure or the fall of someone else? How do you typically respond to the news of the failure or a fall of someone else? Now, here's, here's my kind of answer to that, if I'm honest, and maybe you can identify. If I'm honest, the honest answer is it depends. It depends on who that person is sometimes. It depends on maybe what I thought about them or how I related to them before. Because sometimes we hear word of somebody's weakness or or failure or fall, and it it, it just kind of sickens us. It breaks our heart, and it sickens our stomach. But sometimes in our flesh, sometimes we can say to ourselves at least, "Uh uh-huh, I could have told you that was going to happen. Uh-huh, I saw that coming. Uh Uh-huh, that's kind of what they deserve. And I don't want to get all political here, but even just watching over the past few weeks in our nation and the whole process and what a crazy process it was of the confirmation hearings around Brett Kavanaugh. And I know everybody's got opinions, and many have very, very strong opinions on that. But one thing as I reflected on that, I I wondered, did anybody ever really change their mind in that? Or did we all just kind of give a nationwide example of confirmation bias? That depending upon what your view of this person was going in, that kind of dictated your view of everything since then. How do you tend to respond to the news about the failure or fall of someone else? You say, Jeff, why, why, why would you even ask that? Because it's connected to our heart. What the New Testament reminds us of is simply how we look at and respond to the weaknesses and failures of others tells us a great deal about the state of our heart. It's not so much about what it tells us about them as it tells us about who we are and about the state of our heart. And when we come to those descriptors of love, those action words around love that are tucked away in those first few verses of 1 Corinthians 13, among them we find these words that love is not arrogant or rude. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Henry Drummond put it this way, it delights not in exposing the weaknesses 
of others. How we look at and respond to the failures, the fallings, the sin, the weaknesses of others tells us a great deal about our heart. And Jesus kind of lived that out when he accepted an invitation to a dinner. And so if you have a Bible with you, look at Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. We're, gonna, we're just going to spend a few moments just kind of walking through a dinner and a story, right? It's not dinner and a movie, uh, but, but in this culture you had dinner and there was oftentimes uh, stories associated with it. So let's just unpack it uh, for a few moments and see what God might want to teach us about loving like Jesus loved uh, from this episode out of Jesus' life. Uh, we find, first of all, that there was at this dinner party... Uh, an uninvited guest, an uninvited guest. Chapter 7, beginning in verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. Now, pause there for just a moment. One of the things I do want you to notice about Jesus in this is that Jesus would show up. Jesus would show up, and he would go to a dinner. He would go to a dinner with a Pharisee. He would go to a dinner with someone who had a, a, a questionable a reputation. Why? Because Jesus loved people. Because Jesus loved people and he would show up. He would show up even knowing that somebody has an agenda. Even knowing that somebody's trying to prove something or do something at this dinner. But Jesus showed up because Jesus loved people. And so he accepts this invitation to this dinner. Verse 37, and behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. When she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with her hair, the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with ointment. Now let's pause here and get a little cultural context if we can. My guess is that the last dinner party that you had, nobody reclined at table, right? I mean, that's just not how we typically eat. We want tables and chairs and all of those sort of things. But in this culture, uh, they, they would recline at table. It would be a low table or perhaps even on the ground. They, they would be reclined there with uh, the feet kind of at a side, feet back away from the table, head at, uh, toward the table. And very often, these dinners were kind of in a courtyard area. And so the invited guest would be at table. They would be reclining at table. But there, there might be this whole ring of folks that are just going to be around kind of hanging out, uh, just listening in uh, to what's going on. They're not part of the guest list, uh, but they're there and they're kind of witnessing and taking in what's going on. And I think that's probably the best way to understand this woman who, in a sense, crashed the party. It's not that she snuck in a window or anything like that, but probably was part of that, that circle in the courtyard. And because of what Jesus had done in her life, she responds in what is certainly a most unusual way. Now, let's note a difference very early on. Simon, who is this Pharisee, we find his name is Simon later in, in this chapter. Simon invited Jesus to dinner mainly as a curiosity. It wasn't because of a great love for Jesus. It was perhaps, hey, this will be good entertainment, right? 
Or maybe he felt like, hey, I'm going to be able to to punch a hole in this facade of of who he is. Or I'm going to be able to catch him in something that nobody else has been able to catch him in yet. Or we're going to trap him, whatever it may be. Or maybe it's just for the sheer entertainment value of having this kind of quote-unquote celebrity who is stirring things up at his table and folks could could come and, and witness and be a part of that. But Jesus was there, not because of his love for Jesus, but mainly as a curiosity. But the woman who showed up had a whole different agenda. The woman came to the dinner to honor Jesus and to express her love. She didn't come merely for curiosity. She didn't come to perhaps put him in his place. She already knew what place he had. And she came to respond to that. And she comes and, and, and in, in tears of, of gratitude, she wets his feet and she takes her hair down, which you don't do in public in this culture, and she uses it to, to, to cleanse the feet, to wipe away those tears, and she comes with this gift of this, of this ointment for, for him. And she comes to honor Jesus. She comes to express her love. And her presence and her actions immediately calls for a reaction because we all respond, right? We all respond to other people. And the response of Simon was a judgmental heart as it begins to be revealed in verse 39. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. So in this moment, we find out a whole lot about Simon. We find a whole lot about his heart. See, Simon's pride and arrogance left him spiritually blind because that's what pride and arrogance always does. He could not see Jesus, the woman, or himself correctly. And that's what happens uh, to each and every one of us. In pride and in arrogance, it creates a spiritual blindness. The reality is all of us are pretty sure that the way that we see the world is reality, right? That's why we have times of intense fellowship with each other, right? Sometimes called arguments, right? Because you don't see the world as it is, which is the way that I see it. You don't see or understand reality. But what we fail to understand is that pride and arrogance causes a blindness. So we don't really understand who God is. We don't see ourselves correctly. And we're sure not going to look at other people compassionately along the way. Because pride and arrogance carries with it an inherent blindness. And what he was impartially blind to was the reality of his own need and his own sin. See, he could look at this woman and say, she's a sinner. He would look at Jesus and say, obviously, he's not a prophet because a prophet wouldn't act that way. A prophet wouldn't let this kind of woman touch him, particularly in this public setting like this. And so this is proof. So in just one verse, he's passed judgment on the woman. He's passed judgment on Jesus. And he's elevated himself to a position above both of them. See, the problem was his, her sins were well known. <laughs> the community seems to have been aware of them. But Simon's sins were hidden. That is, they were hidden to everyone except God. And sometimes we can 
get there, can't we? Well, I'm not perfect, but I'm not like da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And I, I, I don't do this, 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 and this. But sometimes, particularly if you've hung out at church for a while, we kind of can engage in respectable sin, right? <laughs> Things that aren't all that apparent, except to God who sees the heart. And Jesus, as he so often did, takes that moment to open up a heart. And sometimes he used questions, but in this case, he used a story. He told a very short, simple story to get to Simon's heart and to get to the heart of the matter. Verse 40, and Jesus answering him, he's speaking directly to Simon, answering him, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher, which is very interesting. Because at this point, he's already determined Jesus is obviously not a prophet. <laughs> well, go ahead. You're here for the entertainment, so go ahead. <laughs> Give it your best shot. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. And just a few sentences of this story, Jesus begins to open up the reality of Simon's heart. Because he tells a story in which both people were bankrupt and they could not pay their debt. They, they, they had this debt, this, this debt that was so large and, and so beyond their means to take care of that there was no way they would be able to cover their debt. But this money lender intervened in grace and mercy and, and, and canceled completely their debt. Now, the point that Jesus was trying to drive home was not so much the, the contrasting amounts of the debt, but more about the awareness of it. You see, what he was trying to drive home to Simon is, Simon, you, you can clearly see her debt, but you do not see your own. And in the eyes of a holy God, you are equally bankrupt. You equally have the inability to cover your debt. Simon, in his pride and self-righteousness, could not really see his need, but he could clearly see the need of another. And so Jesus presses in. And as he presses in, he, he uncovers a lack of love, a lack of love that is exposed. The question was asked, now which one will love him more? And Simon rightly answered, uh, the one, I suppose, whom he canceled the larger debt, verse 44. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, 
Do you see this woman? Of course he saw the woman. He's been looking at the woman. Everybody at the dinner party has been looking at this woman who is breaking all sorts of protocol and showing up and and doing this at Jesus' feet. Yes, he's been looking at the woman, but that's not really the question, is it? Simon, do you really, really, really see this woman? Because we can look at people and not see them, can't we? I can see you. And not really see you. Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. And you did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. You see, love always has a way of showing up. And love shows up in the way that we retreat people. Or a lack of love shows up in the way that we treat people. Simon had no love for Jesus. Commentators argue back and forth whether these things were absolutely required protocol for hosting or or whether it was just kind of a common courtesy. But nonetheless, he didn't do any of this. Jesus was there supposedly as an honored guest. But let's face it, he was there as a curiosity. He was there as dinner entertainment that night. And so you don't don't offer to clean the feet. You don't don't provide a a way for for this anointing with with oil to, to, to be a sign of blessing upon a a person. No, no, no. Because love shows up in the way that you treat people. And if you don't love people, you don't do even those things. But this woman, (laughs) this woman, who has recognized the depth of her bankruptcy, (laughs) this woman, whose heart is overflowing with love, can't help but express it. <laughs> the, the tears, tears of, of joy and gratitude breaks all protocol and takes her hair down in a public setting and, and wipes his feet, offers this gift of this ointment because love shows up in the way that you treat people. But please don't misunderstand here. The woman's display of love provides evidence of her being forgiven. It's not the basis of her forgiveness. She loved that she was doing this not to say, oh, I hope that Jesus somehow, some way might forgive my sin. No, no, no. She's doing this because she has already experienced his forgiveness, his cleansing. He's already experienced this touch of Jesus Christ upon her life. And it's not that these displays of love have earned her forgiveness. It is actually giving evidence of the forgiveness that she has has already experienced in her life because she's been forgiven much. She loves much. But the one in whose self-righteousness does not see any need loves 
very little. And then the episode is drawn to a close by Luke's pen with a forgiveness that's proclaimed. A forgiveness that is proclaimed. Look at the last couple of verses in the chapter. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sin? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now I want you to notice a couple things here. Jesus did not deny her sin. When we talk about grace and we talk about love, it is never about denying sin. It's never about denying its destructiveness, denying the pain that it causes, denying how serious it is in the eyes of a holy God. Jesus never came to deny sin, but he did come to deal with it. He came to deal with it so that it would no longer have dominance in our life, so that it would no longer separate us from a holy God. So it would no longer keep us from being the the people, the children, the, the ones that he has created us to be. Please never, never, never think about grace and love as a denying of a sin, as a diminishing of sin, as if it doesn't matter. It's not that important. It's not that big a deal. It was such a big deal that it sent Jesus to the cross. He didn't come to deny it. He came to deal with it. But he makes this proclamation. Well, why does he make this proclamation now? The proclamation of her forgiveness was an assurance and an invitation. It was an assurance of of what she had already experienced and an invitation to walk in a new life. That that now her faith has saved you. It's not her actions that saved you, for by grace you are saved through faith. And that's not of yourself. She's saved by her faith in Christ Jesus. Her actions are giving evidence of that. But he speaks. He speaks a word of assurance to her because we all have that, particularly if there are things in our past that are dark and and dirty and we, we recognize how far away we are from God, there are moments when we just need that assurance that what Jesus did is enough, that I can be changed, I can be made clean by what Jesus did. But I think he's also doing it in this public setting because what she has done is very public. I mean, Simon knew The other people at the dinner table knew. Perhaps the people around the outside knew. She is a sinner. And here's Jesus making this proclamation. In the earshot of all, she is forgiven. An assurance and an invitation. And it's exactly what you and I need. We need an assurance that what Jesus did was enough. We need his invitation to continually walk as a new creation, continually walk as this new person that he has created and restored us to be in Jesus Christ. You say, all right, Jeff, I haven't reclined at table lately. So what does that mean for me? I mean, what does it look like to love like Jesus loved out of Luke 7. Well, again, love shows up in a lot of different actions in a lot of different ways. So I'm just going to go to the foundation. I'm going to go to the foundation, three foundational truths that I want us to kind of walk away with when it talks about loving like Jesus loved. Loving like Jesus loved 
this tells us it begins with a deep recognition. It begins with a deep recognition of our own need. I love like Jesus loved, beginning when I recognize my bankruptcy. When I realize my inability to pay, my inability to cover, my inability to earn my forgiveness, I recognize my deep need. Paul, who probably had more reason to be self-righteous than all of us in the room combined. Paul, who, who did everything right, who was religious to the core, who was an overachiever to the max. Paul came to a realization in his life that it wasn't enough. That it was not enough to earn God's love. It was not enough to be forgiven. That he needed something he couldn't provide of his own. And he would write to the Ephesian believers these words, and you were dead. This is who you are before Jesus Christ. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Paul's there. None of us puts that on our resume, right? Children of wrath. We talk about our achievements, our education, our awards, child of wrath like the rest of mankind here's here's the thing until we have a deep recognition of our need we will not live with a deep love for God and others and I know this is hard I know that Kind of almost everything in us culturally pushes against this. Listen, listen, listen. When I held a grandson in my arms yesterday, when I wrestled on the floor with a four-year-old, I did not think child of wrath. Right? But what I understand, that we are by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind and I might think I don't owe as much as somebody else and that probably has more to do with my spiritual blindness than reality but regardless of 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 how how it how it shakes out what I do know is that I am absolutely bankrupt apart from the intervening grace of Jesus Christ I begin to position myself to love like Jesus loved with a deep recognition of my own need. But it continues with a deep appreciation. A deep appreciation of God's provision for us in Jesus Christ. Warren Wearsby put it this way. Grace is love that pays a price. And that price was the death of the Son of God on the cross. Jesus Christ, he he gave up the glories of heaven. He came came in poverty. He came all of the human challenges in a sin-scarred world. And he lived the life that you and I were called to live, designed to live, created to live. He died the death that we deserve to die. There on the cross, he absorbed, he took into himself the wrath of God against sin. He, He drew it upon himself so that he could offer to us forgiveness. He could offer to us grace. He could offer to us mercy he could offer to us love and when that grips my heart not just 
a theological argument, but it grips my heart. It sets me up to love radically. See, self-righteousness shrivels our souls. Self-righteousness shrivels our souls. Have you ever seen like, online or a picture or in an aquarium a puffer fish or a blowfish? You ever, ever seen those? I mean, they, they kind of do their thing and then they feel, you know, when they're threatened, they go, right? I mean, they just become this like this ball thing, right? Now, in a cartoon movie, puffer fish are pretty cute, right? It's just, you know, and it looks good, right? But in reality, puffer fish are incredibly dangerous. In fact, they don't just blow up in a cute little ball, but they're full of toxins. And those toxins are designed in part to make them incredibly distasteful to other fish, but also deadly. In fact, is according to National Geographic, the, the, the toxin in a puffer fish is so deadly to humans, it's 1,200 times more deadly than cyanide. That's enough poison in one puffer fish to kill 30 adult humans. And there's no known antidote. You say, Jeff, what in the heck does that have to do with anything, right? <laughs> I just like puffer fish. No, I really don't. Because here's what happens. When I get puffed up with pride, when I get puffed up with arrogance, it's not cute. It's deadly. When I get puffed up with the sense of my own self-righteousness, it becomes toxic. It becomes toxic to my walk with God. It becomes toxic to the relationships of my life. It, it poisons work relationships. It poisons church relationships. It poisons marriage relationships and family relationships. It, it, it Self-righteousness shrivels our soul, and it brings with it a, a toxicity that is damaging to our relationships including our relationship with God. And so we had come to a point of not only a deep recognition of our need, but a deep appreciation of God's provision in Jesus Christ. Now, before I move on from this, I, I want to make sure that you understand that this is not just a one-time thing, but this is an ongoing thing. Because some of you have experienced this and maybe misunderstood it. Maybe you've been walking with the Lord for a while, and, and you celebrate. You feel, hey, I'm making some progress. There's some things that I used to struggle with I don't struggle with as much, and, and, and there's some things I feel like, you know, the Lord's growing me in. And, and you celebrate that, and rightfully so, by the grace of God. But then God shows you something else. And, and, and what God does is he peels back a layer. And maybe you see something that you had not seen before. Or you see it differently. You see it as, as not being just okay or not a big deal, but you see it as dark and you see it as ugly. You see it as destructive. And sometimes in that, sometimes in that we grow in our despair. Maybe we get discouraged. Maybe we think, well, God, I'm, I'm, I'm getting worse instead of getting better. No, 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 no. God actually is at work in grace in your life. And he's peeling back the layers of the onion. And he, he shows you stuff along the way because he loves you too much to leave those toxins in there. He loves you too much to not unpack that stuff. 
And every time he peels back another layer, and every time he shows you something that's, that's dark and ugly, and you thought, I, I, this never bothered me before, but it's bothering me now. That is an activity of the grace of God. And it helps you have a deeper recognition of your need and a deeper appreciation of the perfect provision of Jesus Christ. And every time God peels back a layer and every time God shows you something, don't let that be a point of discouragement. Let that be a point of encouragement. God, you're not going to let me live with these toxins. You're going to keep getting this stuff out of my life. And the only cure is to run back to the cross of Jesus Christ. That's why I never, ever, ever, ever outgrow my need for the gospel. Because every day when God shows me something else, he shows me that only the cross, only the cross is sufficient to clean it up and to change me from the inside out. And when I have that deep recognition and that ongoing deep appreciation, it manifests itself. It manifests itself in the way that I relate to God and I relate to other people. Put very simply, forgiven people love God and love people. <laughs> when you become overwhelmed with the, 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 the forgiveness of God, the one who, who rescued you from this bankruptcy that you could have never gotten out of on your own, it gives you a deep appreciation, a deep love for God, and you begin to look at other people differently. You don't look at them with a self-righteousness. You don't look at them with a judgment, but you begin to look at them with compassion. You begin to understand, there before the grace of God go on, and they're dealing with different stuff than I'm dealing with and maybe they had a different growing up experience or different pressures or whatever it may be different wiring but we all got stuff and God is continually at work in that and I don't I don't sit in righteous judgment on somebody else I instead look at them and say God you're not through with them yet either God help me to love them the way that you have loved me because here's what I know it's the bottom line for the message when we're amazed at God's grace toward us we treat other people with amazing grace when you and I are amazed at God's grace toward us we treat other people with amazing grace And I don't know if you tweet or something, but that might be tweetable. Eh? Eh? And when I deal with people with less than grace, it's a sure sign that I've lost either a deep recognition of my need or a deep appreciation for his provision. That at least for a moment... I've ceased to be amazed by grace. Because when I am amazed by God's grace toward me, I treat other people with amazing grace. But please understand what that grace means. Jesus came to us the embodiment of that type of love. John's gospel records it this way. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father. Full of grace and truth. 
Grace and truth. They're not enemies. They're not opposites. They're not uh, against each other. It's not either or, but it is both and. Because when Jesus came, he didn't came to deny sin. He came to deal with sin. And in his, his love, he deals with you and I. He came, leaving the glories of heaven, not to just say it doesn't matter, not just to beat us up, but to deal with us in grace and truth. And that's what I need if I'm going to love like Jesus loved. I need to be so amazed at his love for me that I treat others with amazing grace. And that amazing grace has an accompanying truth along the way. There are those two railroad tracks that travel together in parallel. Maybe the best way to think about this is just to go back to the cross. Because at the cross of Jesus Christ, you have the perfect justice of a holy, righteous God meeting the grace and mercy of the one who is love. And they met perfectly with neither being compromised at the cross of Jesus Christ. Every single day I need to look at the cross because the cross does two things for me. It'll humble me and it'll encourage me. It humbles me to know that Jesus had to come to the cross because of my sin. It was the only way. My sin, my rebellion, my lack of love made necessary the cross. Every time I look at the cross, it humbles me because he had to come. But encourages me because he was willing to come. He was willing to come And live the life I should have lived and die the death I deserve to die. Because he loved me. This week, I want you to be amazed by grace. And extend that same grace to others. And the only thing that will fuel that consistently is the cross of Jesus Christ. It will humble you. And it'll encourage you. Let's pray to him together, please. Oh, Father, thank you. (laughs) And that seems so inadequate. Thank you for your love that is beyond all understanding. That you have loved us with an everlasting love. You have loved us with an unearned, unmerited love. You have loved us perfectly in grace and truth. And Father, thank you for the cross of Jesus Christ today. Lord, thank you that every time we look at it, it reminds us of the depth of our need. And it fills us with a renewed sense of appreciation for the depth of your provision. And so, Father, today... Would you do what only you can do at the cross? Humble us and encourage us at the same time. And Lord, would you help us anew and afresh to just peel back any semblance of self-righteousness? Would you today allow us anew and afresh to be amazed by your grace so that we can extend that amazing grace to others? 
And I'm just going to ask you to take just a few moments in this setting to be still before the Lord.